Henry's Avalanche Talk provides education and training for skiers who want to go off-piste but want to learn how to manage the risk so they can stay safe and have more fun all at the same time. We do this through a programme of Avalanche Talks, which can be got online or at live events. And uh, we also offer transceiver training, where you can learn how to use the equipment on how to stay safe and, and on-snow courses in Val d'Isere. Okay, that's great. I think we can. I think we can get going now, and uh, we have a good number of people here here with us already. So, so, and as Henry said, welcome to the very first Safety is Freedom webinar. And the idea of these is to it. It's sort of really was a bit inspired by, I suppose, lockdown and all all this, this, the nonsense and the and the difficulties and the problems that we're all having to deal with. Um, so which was to take a look at the subject of risk management and think, well, can, what can we learn from people in the fields of sport, of adventure sports and for business, medicine, law and other areas where we know people and see what lessons we can learn about the subject of risk management and apply them to our lives in general, whether it's to, whether it's to our skiing, to our business, um, and, and to managing COVID or, or, or whatever else we're doing. So whilst there will be a strong winter sports emphasis here, because a lot, a lot of the people we know are in winter sports, and we'll be drawing lessons from that, our intention is to go a little bit beyond that. With regard to housekeeping on this, uh, on this call, um, what we'll do is... Well, I'm, this is going to be an interview with Henry. I will be asking him some questions and he'll be sharing some experiences. If you have questions and discussions, can I invite you please to use the Q&A button? Um, and uh, because and in the Q&A button, you can also have a look there and you see questions come up. And if you like the question, if you, if you click on the like thumb, we then see questions becoming much more popular and they come to the top of the list. So um, we will then address those questions first. And uh, so, I'm, so we're going to have the first 30 minutes or so will be a, a discussion and an interview with Henry. And then we'll, we'll, have a, we'll open it up to a QA. and a I'll invi invite you to use, as I say, the Q&A facility on Zoom. You'll see a button at the bottom. And, uh, and we will uh, take those questions one by one. So to get to the substance then, um, so first of all, I'd just like to introduce Henry. I mean, I guess a lot of you probably will know Henry. Hi, everybody. And uh, I mean, I first met Henry um, when, uh, when myself and, and my wife Shona, we, we hired Henry as a ski guide um, and uh, back in 2003 in the spring and had a glorious week um, enjoy experiencing the spring snow, which gave Henry and I a chance to talk. And over the next... And, and then we we were, we went with Henry quite a few times, and then within about three years, um, we found ourselves as business partners, um, as Henry and I talked about the world of uh, off-piste, of avalanche awareness. And I was at the time particularly struck by Henry's capacity to make a subject that many people seem to make complicated and to make it accessible and make it possible for regular people to make decisions so 
and that is that is all about risk management and uh, and prior to that henry had um had done quite a few things and it was al already very well established by the time i met him and uh, he started his early career um studying um snow science and avalanche and avalanche studies in montana state university and did a lot of field work with the peace patrol in uh, Bridger Bull and Big Sky before coming over to Europe, where I think it'd be fair to say, Henry, you've, you've kind of fell in love with something. Um, and yeah, well, my intention was only to stay, stay in, in, in France for a year and get back and, and go on and do a master's degree in work in avalanche forecasting um, for highways, helicopter ski companies and things like that. But uh, when in my first season here in the Northern French Alps, I saw, I, I saw very close up uh, two, maybe even three accidents where people um, skied out above a steep slope above a hole right next to the piste. They triggered an avalanche um, and were buried and killed. And I thought, well, wait a second. Uh, all this study of avalanche, for, in avalanche forecasting and uh, snow metamorphosis and, and, and snow stability, which is fascinating. I love it. Any of you who've seen any of my talks have uh, seen how I just really get uh, lit up by the whole thing. Um, but it occurred to me that even with a little bit of knowledge, these people um, could have uh, they, they, they could have known better than to, to, to ski uh, right out into those areas that uh, were obvious, uh, obvious dangerous places. And so that's when I, I, I decided to get into um, the awareness side of things rather than go on with an academic uh, career in, in, in avalanche forecasting. I, I think also um, those of you who, who knew me when I was younger, I was a bit, uh, bit hyper, um, couldn't really sit down in one place for very long. <laughs> Even if I spent a lot of time out in the field sitting down and uh, uh, going, back to, going back to the office was difficult for me. Plus I have a huge passion uh, for skiing. Um, grew, up, grew up skiing and racing in New England. But anyway, you wanted to keep going on with a few other things there, Chris. So uh, I think uh, I was going to say the first thought I had was, "What's your first memory of of consciously making a risk assessment?" You know, I'm I'm glad that you sent me these questions a couple of days ago, Chris, because I had to think about that, and then it dawned on me that it was it was um, uh, it, it was it was an awareness of of um, of risk assessment first um, before I applied it, and um, it was while I um, Actually, I, I was a, a student of Boston University doing a geology degree and, and French literature degree there. Um, and then I went out to uh, Montana State University for um, a year and a half or so to, to do the avalanche forecasting side of things. And it was, it was during this time coming aware of, of risk management um, in, 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 in off-piste backcountry areas or in avalanche terrain. Uh, we, that I, I went out on practical um, research with the, the, the avalanche, uh, the ski patrol in Bridger Bowl and in Big Sky, uh, and during their avalanche control in the morning and also just throughout the day. Um, and they talked a lot about, um, above and beyond the explosives and setting off the avalanche and things, the consequences if you're taken here, or if, you're, if the consequences if you're taken there. And sometimes it was just a few meters would be, uh, the consequences could be almost certain death or um, that you, probably would uh, survive, su survive the avalanche. One particular um, story that one of the patrollers in Big Sky told me was a story um, where a, 
a few years before was a, a ski patroller who had a lot of knowledge about avalanches and avalanche control. Um, he, he was taken into this place, I think it was called the Snake Pit, um, which was, it looked like a fairly in, innocuous kind of uh, place, but it was a steep slope above like a hole. Um, so, the, and, and it, was, it was a small avalanche apparently that took him, knocked him, knocked him over and the snow, it was only a, a, a small crown line of about 20, 30 centimeters apparently. And this poor guy, ended up with his feet in the air and his head underneath the snow. So like a meter, meter and a half underneath the snow. And his feet were sticking out and apparently they were wiggling. And uh, the, the other patroller who was with them didn't have a shovel or anything. So ran, uh, skied off to get the, uh, the rescue. And of course, we all know that, that you only have about uh, 15 minutes to live if you're in that kind of a situation with your head underneath the snow. So they came back and, they, and, and, um, and he was dead. And there was two things that that impressed upon me was, was steep slopes above terrain traps, especially holes. And, um, and also the, the fact that you need to have the right equipment if you're gonna be able to uh, get your, your mate out from under the, the snow or if they're gonna be able to get you out from under the snow um, alive within 15 minutes. So that, okay, that was the awareness side of things. And then um, I can remember getting to your question, uh, Chris, uh, where I'm, I remember applying risk reduction um, or risk assessment was, uh, was in, in, in Bridger Bowl uh, when I was going down a, a, off the ridge, a, um, one of the gullies, I think it was called a hidden gully and thinking, all right, now I'm gonna, my line I'm, that I'm gonna take, I'm gonna avoid poles and, um, and I'm, and I'm going to try to avoid trees because, of course, you know, trees can hold be, be stabilizing factors in the slope, but it, they can also be deadly if you're taken and it's really steep in there. Any of you know that. Um, actually, my first time in there was with, uh, on, on that was with Doug Coombs, who uh, I have very good memories of and many people do. He went on to be a very, very famous uh, uh, individual um, in, in movies and all kinds of stuff and very sadly died in La Grave a, a number of years ago. Um, but that was where I started first thinking about risk reduction and also how you have to apply simple things and, 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 and how so many of the avalanche accidents um, that, that, and those of you who have experience will know, it's simple things, uh, simple risk reduction measures that were not applied by people who, who knew about them, but for some reason at the time they weren't applying them like that poor uh, ski patroller. Um, and also the fact that um, in, in those days, a lot of us didn't carry around uh, shovels and probes and, and a lot of us didn't even have uh, transceivers with us. So does that answer your question? I know I'm, I have a habit of, 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 of going on with all kinds of stories and things and elaborating on questions. So I'll try to be as short as possible and I'll count on you, Chris, to keep me in line. So we uh, keep, keep this succinct. We call, we call this webinar series, uh, Henry, um, Safety is Freedom. Yeah. And uh, now this was a line you came up with. So what, uh, what events or, or circumstances were behind, behind coming up with this line? Well, as I said, I grew up skiing and, and racing in, in, um, in, in New England. I'm from the Boston area originally and, and got um, involved very, at a very young age, thanks to my parents getting me into the, into the ski club and, um, at, at, at Sugarbush. So uh, to make a long story short, those of you who, who know New England, um, you know that you get to a really good standard of uh, skiing and racing, especially up in the northern Vermont, uh, where you have uh, icy conditions and not tons of off-piste to be had. So um, 
well, when I came over to uh, to Europe for the first time, I had a very high standard of skiing, but but um, but no mountain knowledge whatsoever. I really had had no clue. I was about 18 years old. I had a lot more hair than I have now, but uh, but a lot less uh, sort of knowledge about um, how to be safe. But I did discover one thing. I loved the off-piste, and I got interested to the tour and introduced to touring and everything in deep snow. Um, I was on a pair of 220 women's downhill skis and I just I, I had the greatest time of my life and I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life but I also knew that um, that there was this thing called avalanches I had a couple close calls triggered avalanches and because um, I was I was ripping it up all over the place and uh, you know I knew and I'd always heard about these stories like Buddy Warner who was killed in an avalanche um, and um, people you know in these, these ski areas a bit taboo subject but people would talk about it you know in the evenings over drinks and stuff like that so I knew if I wanted to get out and explore and push the limits um, that I really needed to learn about safety and, th and, and that was when I was 18 um, and before I, I started to uh, uh, get the opportunity where I got the opportunity to, uh, to, to, to study avalanche forecasting and so I, it was that knowledge that safety was the key to being able to adventure further out into the uh, in, in, into areas like uh, the, right behind me, and and um, to me it was just such a great revelation. And since I like sharing my my passions with other people, um, it all came together like that. And I think the other thing, Chris, too, is that I wanted to get people passionate about learning the subject. And it's a great way to make a, a, a very dry and not very interesting kind of. Thing, safety has become really not an interesting subject and, and all full of uh, uh, kind of uh, ideas or, or, or feelings of constraint and everything. I wanted to sort of give the, the, the concept of safety a boost. So, uh, I mean, safe, actually, there's a question just come up here, Henry, which, um, yeah. which I think you have a good answer to, which is, have you ever been caught in an avalanche yourself? Yes, but luckily... I would add to that. And, and what did you learn from that? Well, I've had very close calls, um, a, a couple close calls, and luckily I lived through them because, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about is the, uh, is the low feedback, low validity uh, dimension of, 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 of the, con the risk context of avalanche terrain. You can have near misses and not even know it. You know, you don't get feedback from your surroundings. And if you do get feedback, it's with something that could kill you. And, um, and that's one of the really, really difficult things in terms of risk management in this context we'll, we'll get to in a minute um, but I've never been buried and, and with my, my head underneath the snow and uh, I've been taken for uh, a hundred meter ride it was a danger rating of one day I left my shovel and probe at home and uh, I, I you know it was one of those classic human factors things where I, I, I just stopped uh, thinking about any sort of uh, safety uh, 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 risk reduction measures because it was it was a danger rating of one um, and so I've been very lucky and knock on this piece of wood here, um, I'll, I'll, I'll stay, um, stay out from un underneath. I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I, I, and I don't advise people to learn about avalanches the way I did. In fact, um, a deterrent to that was someone took a video of me that I use a lot in the talks, those of you who've seen that, um, and uh, also sent it into National Geographic. So about my fifth or sixth year of uh, doing um, avalanche talks and promoting myself as the avalanche educator and being known as the avalanche educator in the Scary Val d'Isere, uh, where I live in the Northern French Alps. I was known after that as the avalanche maker, which is a dubious reputation to have in my position indeed.
And so maybe linked to that, when was the first time you gave an avalanche talk, Henry? How did that come around? Well, it came around when um, I had pretty much decided uh, when I was in, in, in France, in the French Alps for the first time at, at, at eight. Uh, oh, no, you know what it was? It, was, it, was, it wasn't when I was 18. It was, it was five years later when I came back from um, doing all the studying. And I did a, a, an expedition in Alaska as well and studied avalanche forecasting. So I had a lot more knowledge about it. And when I had made the decision to, uh, to not pursue a career and, um, you know, go on to do a master's and doctorate and things like that and, and, um, and, and do something in one of the avalanche forecaster, forecasting centers in America or, or Canada or France, um, I came across a, a set of, um, a set of uh, awareness slides, um, you know, slides that you show images and things like that at the French um, Avalanche Association called the Anina. And um, uh, I thought, wow, you know, this kind of thing uh, could save lives um, and, 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 and getting, getting the message out to people so that they might not, they might think twice about skiing over a steep on a steep slope above um, a terrain trap is what, you know, terrain trap, for those of you who've seen the talk, is a, is a place that will exacerbate the effects of any, even a little avalanche and, and can cause death where you wouldn't even think it could, um, it, it, it could if, if, if you weren't over that terrain trap. So, um, so that, um, that experience is, 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 is what gave me the motivation. And I started giving little talks around uh, Valdez, this is 1988, no, 1980, um, yeah, gosh, I think it might be, yeah, 1989, January of 1989, I believe, um, or 88, I can't remember, so long ago. Um, and, um, and then uh, this was in Valdez, and there's lots of people who were interested in the subject. They said, you should get someplace and do a talk for everybody, get the slide projector out and everything. And um, it was a guy named Gregor um, who, uh, who was running uh, playback. It was a nightclub. And he said, you know, I have a space at seven o'clock in the evening. You can go on the dance floor there uh, before the nightclub, nightclub kicks off, you know, at 11 or 12 at, at night. Um, so it was Gregor Robertson who went on to create GJs. Some of you will know, uh, know him from, from those days, but this goes way back to playback. And I did two talks in there and uh, people loved it. And I got all kinds of great feedback, got paid a little bit for it. And the next year, um, Gregor left playback and went to start up this place called GJs. And, and then Dick from Dick's T-Bar uh, took me on and uh, for about, I think about 20 seasons did, did um, had me do the, the talks in his, um, in his nightclub in the same sort of format and driven by knowing people who had been killed in avalanches. Uh, you know, you spend enough time all, a year or two in a, in a ski area um, in the Northern French Alps anyway, or through Austria, Switzerland, and where there's great off-piste, you're gonna know of and know people who are killed in avalanches uh, very sadly. So that, does that communicate yeah. the motivation for right. it? And, uh... Now the safety is freedom thought. I mean, my when I first saw that, it kind of almost jarred a bit because well, there's two opposite ideas in there. Yeah. Uh, how does that? And 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 then you kind of you get to to feel it and know it and think actually, yeah, th there is something in the idea that um, if you feel safe, you are freer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, you can manage safety. But what's your how do you think about those two, bringing those two thoughts together in one phrase, Henry? Because I think okay, well, that underpins the whole risk management approach. Yeah. Really. Well, it's the whole idea of um, of 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 the, if if you if you apply the risk 
you know, risk reduction measures um, here in avalanches, but also in other areas. You know, we, we have, I've worked now with people in aviation, with surgery, um, uh, and um, and even financial planning and things. If you if you if you do an assessment and you look and you 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 look at the facts and evidence, you do an information based overview of. Of, of what it is that you're going to move forward in, then you can confidently move forward um, in a sense that's much freer than if you're just sort of sitting there like, well, I'm, uh, you, if you leave it down to something happening that you don't even know about or some sort of uh, uh, random risk, then you're not a lot more fearful of something that could uh, um, affect you. So the, it's the idea of, 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 of looking at the key things that could lead to a high consequence event like loss of life or loss of livelihood. And, 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 and what I've created is a framework so that you get look at the key things that in most cases um, in, in, in past incidents have, have led to, to, to accidents. And if you, you, you check those off, and I'm, I'm not saying the checklist or, or everything, but if you look at that in a framework and, and apply those in your decision-making, risk reduction and also be prepared for a crisis, um, then you can move for, uh, forward uh, confidently. I just wanna say one thing. I think, I think we made a little bit of a mistake, Chris, when we were saying that when you, when you feel free, you can, um, it makes things a lot better. Feel, one, of, one of the dangers here that you always have to keep in, in, in check with a facts-based and information-based, evidence-based assessment is that um, a lot of times, people um, feel oh, safe in very dangerous situations. And um, so, so the idea is that you, 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 you wanna get to the place where you're being safe in a very, very uh, objective uh, way. Um, and that's why you, you, you develop checklists in aviation, um, in surgery, and all these other areas that we've borrowed in the avalanche industry to, uh, to make objective assessments of things because we get led astray so easily with all the passion we have. And the fact that most of the time, um, if we're in a dangerous place, um, you don't trigger an avalanche and nothing happens. Like I said before, um, it's very difficult to go on near misses and, 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 and learn from trial and error. In fact, it's impossible to, to learn from trial and error um, in avalanche terrain because you don't get the feedback in, in the environment um, around you. Um, you mentioned checklists there, Henry. And uh, now, I'm interested in to explore that a bit further and to dive into that one because I will never forget when I was in uh, in Val a few seasons back and uh, I was in a lift with one of the anaesthetists from the doctors conference in uh, in uh, in late January in Val yeah. and was chatting to them about their conference and about Henry's Avalanche talk and I mentioned about checklists and yeah. he, he was very dismissive of them on the yeah. basis that he felt it suppressed the, the, it was oversimplification of a complicated decision and it kind of suppressed, if you like, the individual brilliance and experience of the expert. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, he and I think you've come across this attitude, whereas other people who believe, like the whole, like the airline industry, who believe that, that, that checklists are extremely powerful, even though they are in some ways simple. Well, I mean, you get it everywhere when they're uh, when they're brought in. But it's it. The, the, let, let's take um, if you you've mentioned the anesthetists and the and the, the surgery and the medical area. Um, 
in in surgery, I've done quite a bit of work with with surgeons, and there's there's one surgical team I know in Devon who who applies uh, my framework and calls it uh, patient safety is freedom, um, and the idea is to reduce the risk of um, avoidable harm and death to, um, to to patients, and it it's a growth out of the the WHO, the World Health Organization surgical safety checklist, which this person is very. Uh, critical about. So I'm just going to stick with the surgical safety um, mm -hmm. checklist and what I know about it. And what you have to remember is that um, these avoidable errors that cause death and harm to patients, um, they most often come about um, as, as very simple mistakes. Um, so these are intelligent, highly intelligent, very well-trained people who have to go back um, and check that they're not making stupid mistakes. And why is that? Because lots of stupid mistakes have been made in the past. What kinds of mistakes? Well, uh, a surgical team will take uh, a um, patient into the operating room and operate on the wrong limb. Um, that happens thousands of times still a year, even in places that apply the surgical safety checklist or, or should be applying it. Um, and uh, other thing that's called uh, wrong site surgery and is often known as never events. Um, I'm going to get back to this never event and draw a parallel with avalanches in a second too. Um, the other thing is mistaking the identity of the patient. Um, and this happens so frequently um, and, and did so before the checklist that um, people felt that it needed to be corrected. And so what you need to do is just realize that, um, that it's, it's very simple um, that um, knowledge now, we make about 30 errors a day. No matter how smart you are, how stupid you are, we make 30 errors a day. You have to accept that you've made, you make that. Um, and, and that and, and when I, so that's when I talk about people who've made errors, I'm not saying that they are, um, that they're incompetent or there is uh, negligence that's, been, that, that's, that, that's happened. It's natural to make mistakes. What, what, what is irresponsible is not to put into place um, frameworks, checklists, or reminders so that you don't make stupid mistakes with high consequences. One of the things about all of these things, these, uh, these areas of endeavor, Chris, professions or activities, is that they all are high consequence, meaning that there will be death or loss of life or loss of livelihood in the case of finances if these simple mistakes are made. And you can imagine if you were, um, uh, and to take it to the extreme things that have happened, if you woke up after surgery and they amputated the wrong arm. So anyone who complains about this kind of thing um, should stand back and think about all of the damage and, and suffering that has been caused by these stupid mistakes and say that, look, it's just a simple thing. And the, but the limitations of the surgical, surgical safety checklist, from what I understand, number one, is that it, it happens right at the operating room. So there's already been the decision to operate, even if it was the wrong decision, even if there didn't need to be any of an operation. Um, and, um, and then it stops um, ap ap after that. Um, and there's also cases in these never events where things have been left inside the patient. And um, so anyone, anyone who criticizes it should stand back and think, well, um, anything that makes my job easier, and we talk about, like when we're talking about safety is freedom, we're trying to help people to be successful and enjoy their, uh, their experience. Um, the, a path to success and enjoyment is, is, is that you don't have to worry if you left a, a swab or, a, or a, a, a surgical instrument inside of someone. You don't have to worry if you're, if you're, if you're operating on the right uh, knee or the correct knee or not. 
Um, and, and so uh, that, that's, that's my, and, and, and about 90, 95% of surgeons um, have that attitude, but there is a small minority of, but very loud minority of, of surgeons who are against it because they think it's an encroachment on their freedom. And me personally, I think they, it's a, uh, a problem they have with the administration, whether it's you know the NHS in England, there's too invasive and et cetera. But I do wanna quote just one thing um, that, that, that is, is a validation of safety of, is freedom. And in fact, exact same thing, uh, Atul Gawande, who created the surgical um, safety checklist and wrote the book um, called uh, the Ch Checklist Manifesto. Um, first and foremost, he said, what we're trying to avoid with this is when the basics um, are not followed. Um, uh, they were known, but they weren't followed, right? So, um, and, and then afterwards, he, what he says to all these critics is, is, is that if, if with discipline, discipline makes daring possible. Discipline makes daring possible safety is freedom i'm not very good with discipline so i chose free uh, safe, uh freedom i think that's interesting henry because uh, something i've noticed from other experiences i've had which i won't go into now but is that when there's an investigation into a serious accident or a serious problem it's usually not just one decision or one event they usually find a trail of of mistakes or distractions or other things that yeah um and that it was like it was almost going to happen yeah um and i've always seen the checklist as a as a device to kind of interrupt that that chain if it's starting to happen the of, chain of uh, events or the swiss cheese kind of thing yeah yeah that, no, people, so, yeah well it's um, exactly that and it, it, a lot of these things are um very simple and that's why they get criticized i mean i get criticized for saying uh you know that uh, you can be safe as driving your car for for a day or so although i borrowed that from bruce tremper and his uh blog mm -hmm. that i encourage everybody to read out there it's, it's, it's it gives a good basis for how we define safe what's safe and what's not safe um as well as what you can apply for yourself too it's a good little article on risk it's called uh, what are the risks of riding in avalanche terrain, I believe, and that's by Bruce Tremper. And it's part of an overall um, uh, study that he did with a number of people in Canada and Europe um, on, um, on the overall uh, odds of triggering an avalanche and, uh, and, and comparing with, with other, other, other areas. And he said that if you are applying uh, the basic risk reduction measures that you learn in basic avalanche classes and things like that, your, um, the, the, you can make off-piste or backcountry skiing um, as, as safe as everyday activities like driving your car for an hour. Um, if you do not, then uh, apply these basic uh, risk reduction measures, um, then it can be surprisingly dangerous, as he says, like, uh, well, like base jumping or, 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 or and, and, you know, if you're not familiar with base jumping, it's a pretty dangerous thing with this pretty high mortality rate. Um, so, so this is another thing that all these um, endeavors and professions have in common is that they're high consequence, death um, or, or loss, of life, loss of life or loss of livelihood, um, aviation, military or civilian, surgery, um, the avalanche, uh, avalanche thing um, and um, avalanche risk management and um, I forgot the other one we were, we were talking about and, and in finance to a large extent as well. So what I think um, I'd like to um, ask Henry a couple of questions now about uh, the situation in France right now in relation to the to the opening or not of ski resorts 
but before and, and then after that, there are a number of questions cropping up in the Q&A and I think we'll, we'll come back and we will address those. Um, but um, but before we do that, I would just want to can ask I just you say one thing. Also, all of these um, all of these uh, uh, professions and endeavors are avoidable, too. So we're talking about the surgical safety checklist or you know frameworks and uh, uh, none of these things are perfect. And it's been shown that you do not need to be perfect to save lives. Um, but the, the, all, all of these uh, areas are, uh, they, they we're talking about avoidable um, accidents that are either triggered by the victim in the case of avalanches or the practitioner in, in the cases of surgery um, and, and others. So they're all avoidable. 90 to 95% of the time in avalanches, it's the victim that triggers avalanches. And in, in, in patient safety, uh, for example, it's the practitioner or practitioners that trigger the, um, the avoidable harm to the, to the patient. So the, the next thing we wanted to have, would to, I said, would you like to be the person who decides if it's safe to open a ski resort following <laughs> COVID lockdown, Henry? Well, you know, one of the reasons I didn't go in to be a, 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 a politician is because um, there's always going to be a lot of people out there who hate you and you just want to try to get as many people uh, to love you as you can and hope that it's more than the people who hate you. <laughs> and uh, I'm sort of an embracing person. I want to embrace everybody and, uh, and make everybody love me and ha have, make everybody have a, have a great time. But um, I think in this uh, situation... What do you think the main considerations would be? You know, and, uh, well, again, thank you for um, giving me uh, a little bit of warning on this one. For me, the main consideration right now in Savoie and Haute Savoie, in English it's Savoy, Haute Savoie, these are the biggest ski areas in the world pretty much from um, the three valleys uh, in Savoy, uh, Haute Tarentaise, Tien, Val d'Isère, La Plaine, Les Arts, the Paradis Ski, all these, and then a ton of great little places in Savoie. And Haute Savoie is like Chamonix Mont Blanc and all kinds of other great places, Morzine and all of that. So in these two departments, the, um, the, the cases of, of, of COVID are at the highest of all of France right now. Now what that's doing, and this is, if I was a politician, what I would drive through to, in everybody's head is that the, the impact of that right now is that the intensive care units in, in all the hospitals, um, at least in Savoy, are overflowing. And that means, and you saw, you alerted me to this, Chris, you saw in England, a French report on they're actually having to move patients out of the hospitals, out of the uh, intensive care wards and fly them to uh, Bordeaux and other places in France. That's how bad it is. So what does that mean for visitors to ski areas? That means that if all of the attention is on the intensive, intensive care units and the hospital beds are full and all of the attention is on those places, in the um, emergency room, as we call it in America, the A&E accident and, and, and emergency is probably a better, better term for it used in the UK. There's a, a real lack of, uh, of, of attention there. So if you have a, a, a traumatisme, as uh, I was talking to a ski, ski patroller, peace patrol, peace here in, in Val d'Isère a couple of days ago, you arrive in the um, A&E and it, maybe it's empty. <laughs> and so there's a real risk for people coming into a context where there's not going to be any uh, real medical support for trauma. Put it, think, think of it this way too. You do a femur that cuts your artery. You have maybe due to internal bleeding, um, the, the uh, emergency uh, 
uh, first aid people, the ambulance people can, can stem it off, stem it off, stem it off for a little while. You get to the, 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 the emergency room. Well, you've got like, I think it's about uh, 40 or 50 people um, in the, the hospital in Chambéry who are uh, on, on COVID, um, as they call it. So that's the uh, intensive care unit. Those people, some of them are probably on the brink of death right now because there's about seven or eight people dying every day in there. So all of the attention in the hospital is on those people and you're gonna sit there and bleed out and die from a broken femur. Um, so I, I think that the, 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 the politicians should be saying, look, this is what is going on right now. It's very dangerous to introduce our great clients and guests to um, and invite them to our ski areas, the best ski areas in the world, in my opinion. Sorry for people living in other places. Um, but uh, to invite people into that context, we take it for granted um, that uh, we're going to be looked after in these kinds of, uh, you know, when we have an injury like that. That's not the case right now. Um, so, and, and you can judge that by the, the, um, the number of COVID race um, cases. For example, in Savoy right now, it's about 700. Um, 700 per 100,000 uh, 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 population. Big, I don't know if I'm going, let me know if I'm going too far with this. Now, Henry, that was, I think that was a very good summary of, of the key decision criteria. But as you say, we need to see the cases come down. But something I would share with the UK audience is that the cases are coming down in response to the French lockdown much faster than appears to be the case in the UK at the moment. Um, so I, I think, as you say, the precondition is a significant drop in the caseload and then then the economy and the politicians might be willing to consider it given what you just said about the hospital situation yeah. but even two weeks ago even a week or so ago henry that number in savoir was nearly a thousand per hundred thousand ah, okay so the number is dropping um, yeah. and, 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 and without going into uh, the that will flow through into an easing of the uh, the healthcare situation Yes, yeah, and uh, they still have a long way to go. I think is the best summary, rather than spouting out all kinds of uh, uh, out of data. They still have quite a long way to go. But as Chris pointed out, it's dropping, uh, dropping a lot. Um, the other aspect is is um, pr uh, protecting um, people who are visiting the resort from the, the virus itself, um, which is uh, you know it can kill people. And um, and 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 so what they uh, all of the ski resorts throughout the northern French Alps, and I'm sure in Switzerland and Austria are taking precautions um, like putting plexiglass uh, up around the, um, you know, as you've seen in stores and things like that, everyone will be required to wear a mask from 11 years old up, upwards in age and buses and public spaces, gel and things. I think, um, and I'm, I'm just going to uh, venture an estimate based on the research I've done over the last few days, uh, um, thanks to your prompting me with the questions, Chris. Um, I think um, early January is, 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 is a possibility. It's an optimistic possibility right now um, for um, opening and for the, the, the context here to go down enough so that it's safe, to, um, for, it's safe for, for guests uh, and, and clients of the resorts to come in, um, not only from the, the, the hospital um, context, but also from um, the, the COVID that's going around in all the resorts right now. I mean, there's, there's place, uh, the, 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 um, the, the viruses, there's, there's cases of virus in, 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 in all, of, all of the resorts. So I, I would venture early, early January. I mean, in Val d'Isere, there's a World Cup events coming up. It's great from the, 15th, from the 5th of December to the 20th of December, a whole bunch of uh, um, events that you know, can't have any spectators or anything, but at least that's something going on. But, and... Uh... And I have the impression, Henry, and maybe you can confirm this, that the, the resorts are planning and well set up to open 
that they are just waiting for um, for official advice that it's safe to do so. Yes, and 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 the media right now in France is preparing everybody for the next. Uh, the, the, the next kind of um, overview from the president and the prime minister and the, and the, and the, and the health um, authorities to, to talk about uh, wh where we're gonna go. It's next week, I think. Then there's talk about um, deconfinement, but it's like a gradual deconfinement and they're already preparing saying it's gonna be minute steps by minute steps by minute, by, by minute steps. Um, I think one of the things I've uh, learned through this um, is, is just how dependent we are and what a pillar of, of our democratic society that, um, that the hospitals are. I mean, without the hospitals, I mean, I think of my son, um, gosh, and I might even get teary over this. He went in for uh, a, a ruptured appendix uh, at five years old a year and a half ago. He had about a day to live and he was suffering in agony. If he if um, if 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 he couldn't get treated uh, because the, the doctor was away treating you know fifteen or twenty dying patients that were already you know sort of dying, um, he'd be dead now. And that's what happened years ago, didn't it? With uh, ruptured appendix and things like that, um, you know, children, people just just died. And it's very very sad because I like having them around. So. Um... And uh, well, but fortunately, he's with us, Henry. So isn't he? Yes. Yeah. We saw a picture of him just the other day. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the uh, some questions here, and I'm going to move on to the questions from the group here now, Henry, and, uh, and yeah. uh, in, in order of popularity. Okay. So I'm just going to read them out, Henry, and then we can chat. So okay. Groups are not led by a professional guide may have a significantly lower authority gradient than when there is a clear paid leader presence. Yes. In groups of friends and peers, it might be the geek who is A, aware of the risk or B, expresses an awareness of likely risk. Yes. What are your thoughts on how to express risk awareness when in the backcountry with a peer group? I have to say, that's a great question. That's a great question. There's a whole subconscious. And, and so you, Henry, always have the authority when you're with a group. If I'm with a group of mates, I'm like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that's also, uh, and I, and, and excuse me, I know Chris always, he, he criticizes me for having a habit of doing this. I want to make one, mention one thing about professionally guided, guided groups before I answer that question. Um, I think it's really important. Um, and we talk, uh, we talked about the, the, the criticism of checklists and teamwork, teamwork and risk management and things like that. And the simplicity, one of the big criticisms of pilots when they introduce the, the, the co-pilot um, to actually assess the pilot before takeoff um, was that their authority was being undermined. And, um, but it's been shown in so much research, many of you will be aware, aware of right now that a co-pilot is really, really important, especially when the pilot is in that kind of autistic, narrow uh, uh, kind of mode of uh, decision-making and they're not seeing, you know, they may be seeing something important on their screen, but they, there's maybe a mountain <laughs> they're, they're flying and, and it's up to the co-pilot to tap them on the shoulder and say, well, what about this? So I encourage everybody out there who's skiing with professionals, whether it's me or, or whoever, to, um, to uh, you know, appropriately but consistently ask questions for your own learning um, uh, evolution, but also to, uh, to get that um, uh, professional out of that um, automatic, impulsive uh, decision-making modes that we slip into so easily in these environments. 
And it's and, and it is and that's what leads to these simple mistakes that we make. Does that does that make sense, Chris? And I think you should choose um, your professionals based on that, um, because if you look at the statistics, um, it's there's a lot of professionals uh, get into accidents, and um, it's always the same. They should have known better. Of course, we knew better, but we weren't applying our knowledge and our experience at the time, and that could have maybe been changed if we had a little bit of a hey, um, what about this um, co-pilot kind of um, from inside of the group? Um, so to get to the, um, what are my thoughts about the geek um, who, who, who starts uh, talking about the, um, uh, and managing in a group of people? Um, well, I, I talked about um, uh, a, a minute ago, um, the uh, decision, the, 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 the gr groups um, together um, checklists, uh, the criticism of checklists you brought up, Chris, um, are validly criticized if they're pointed to as the only um, solution. Um, you, need, you need teamwork to go with it. And everybody's got to be on the same page, I, I think, upstream before you go out onto the mountain. The same thing in surgery, like we talked about, the checklist only comes in at the, uh, at the point of surgery. There's a whole uh, decision-making process upstream in surgery, there's patient consent, and now they're talking about shared decision-making. Oh my gosh, this patient has something to say about the surgery that they're, 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 that's gonna happen to them, where they talk to the, um, talk to the surgeon about, you know, to start with whether or not they're gonna, it's a good idea to have the surgery in the first place. So I, what my first advice is, is that you know the team, all right? So it's not just frameworks and checklists and things like that. You know the people you're going out with, and, um, and so you don't get in a situation. I'm not sure if you, this was a, uh, if you were applying by the geek um, uh, being perhaps the most responsible one, but if, you're, if you have that uh, sort of uh, human factor trap as it's called of um, the, the expert halo, that geek is gonna be not listened to at all in that group. It's the, the person in the group who seems to look and know what they're talking about, even though uh, they may not have anything, uh, know, know at all what they're talking about. So that kind of thing needs to be um, uh, sorted out uh, beforehand upstream by choosing the people that you ride with and also going over, I'm going to come out with, a, I call it a framework because I have a whole first set of decision making um, that is, starts the day before, like looking at the avalanche forecast and stuff like that. In fact, you can look at a, a brief overview on it on my last blog post called Safety is Freedom. Um, and I have a, a framework um, that, that, uh, for, that starts with the decision-making process and then risk management and then the crisis management. So I, um, I, I know I didn't address the whole, um, your, your whole uh, question there, but um, the simplest is it's okay, Henry. I think we're good. Ski we're with good. the people, ski with people that you know and you trust and, uh, and have a discussion beforehand um, so that you can be all on the same page when you're, when you're out on the mountain. And uh, just for everyone here, th by the way, these um, broadcasts will be reposted on our website under a new web page that's not there yet called, that we'll, about where the webinars. They'll be on our YouTube channel. And uh, we're planning to repurpose this as, as a podcast so that people can just listen to, listen to these. And, that, and so all of those, we will send out information about that on our Facebook and on our uh, email list as we, as we normally do. Um, so uh, another question there, Henry, is uh, this is from David. Hi, Henry and Chris. I went to my first hat in David Barnsley. Euler. No, David Cuttill. Okay. I went to my first hat in Val in 2003. Since then, avalanche airbags have become almost mandatory. 
And how has airbag use changed the way we manage ourselves in the off-piste? That's a leading question if I've ever heard from one. We're talking about risk compensation, maybe, or taking extra risk because you have the equipment. Certainly that's there. <clears throat> there hasn't been a formal study on that yet, but all of the avalanche professionals that I know um, are uh, agree that there's going to be, I think the technical word is risk uh, um, compensation or risk homeostasis or whatever. It means that, you know, you, if you have... Uh, equipment like that, you're going to be taking extra risks. Of course, of course, that's going to happen. But at the same time, the uh, the, the international avalanche safety community um, professionals uh, have has has embraced and endorsed the um, the uh, avalanche airbag as the best way to survive um, an avalanche if you're in it because it keeps you on top. 70% of all avalanche deaths happen because of asphyxiation and, this, and if something can keep you on top, that's a great, uh, a great bonus. So what we need to do is, I, this is kind of an individual thing I think is, is um, depending, you have to look at yourself and um, you know, avalanche experts have said, have said this and, agile, and very well-known avalanche ed educators have said that avalanche safety is more about know um, knowing yourself than about avalanches. And this is a perfect question to, to introduce that concept. And I'll tell you just one thing that I do because um, I wear an air, airbag a lot um, for, because it has definite benefits and I encourage people to wear it. I don't, I don't put it down in the obligatory transceiver shovel and probe though. Um, for basically the, the risk compensation reasons. So um, I wear it most of the time. When do I not wear it? I don't wear it when it's most dangerous, when it's most unstable, when the best snow is out there. If there's a danger rating of four, for example, where I'm gonna stay on slope steepnesses of mainly areas that have slope steepnesses of less than 30 degrees, I won't wear it because I'll see as every time, most of the time nothing happens, people will be ripping it up and getting great turns all over the place on really steep slopes and stuff on a, a danger rating of four, um, where and uh, and and you know most of the time nothing happens, but then there's a couple people are taken, usually one or two people killed in the in the region, um, and I need I just need that to uh, to help me from um, from just um, someone saying oh come on you know there's you know there's John or Fred or Jean Francois did that line over there can we do it can we do it. Um, uh, and I and I don't want to imply there that 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 it's that it's clients or or, or mates who 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 um, uh, who, who um, influence me in that way. It's it's also myself. Uh, I, I want to get out there. I want to have fun and I want to show people a great time. So it's a great way for me to keep myself in check and 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 and, and full of paradoxes. That was one of the things I was going to say about um, safety is freedom. Is that the avalanche world and avalanche risk management, like you know the aviation. The, 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 the finance the surgery is full of paradoxes and that's why it's great to have that strap line safety is freedom is a paradox but then that's why uh, that's a that's a big one right there i don't wear my avalanche airbag um when it's most uh likely to be uh, be the most unstable and dangerous remember I, I avoid using the word it's dangerous out there because whether or not it's dangerous depends on you um and uh and uh, it can be perfectly fine on a danger rating of four if you stay away from those uh, steep slopes um, that are prone to avalanche Mentioning aviation, Henry, as a comment from uh, um, the person who asked about the, the, the peer group and geek questions, addendum to my comment and question, I'm a military aviation risk management consultant yeah. as a pilot in a first world air force. So I think in risk management framework, but don't have the mountain credentials to act as leader on the mountain, hence the... Okay, the, I want to just give you a quote. Then, but also okay. said, it's nice to hear Henry so trotting out the same stuff we believe in in military aviation, so... 
Okay, well, we're going to have my friend um, A.B. Burke, who's an ex-fighter um, pilot uh, and, um, and who's encouraged me and, and, and coached me a bit. And if you want to look at something interesting, I um, posted, uh, what, what was the person's name again? The name wasn't declared. Okay, okay. Well, um, uh, if you go, I, it was the early June, I, I, I post, I might repost it, um, a, a, a blog post at uh, Risk Management in the COVID Area, um, the biggest error would be to think that we don't make any errors. And I translated a, um, an article by a, a person who worked on the Concord. And I'm just going to take a little quote from him right now. His name's Franck Dubuc. And it was a uh, article that actually was published by the French Association, Avalanche Association, um, uh, their review called the, well, the, la, la, revue, la Revue de l'Anina. It's a person named Franck Dubuc. And, uh, and I, another thing I haven't emphasized enough right here either is how you got to keep these things simple. Even if they're imperfect, um, they need to be simple so we apply them. Applying is the most important thing, or it's, it's excessively important. So Frank DeBook says um, he's the, uh, he was the operations manager for the Concorde at the time of the accident in, in uh, July 2000. And he one of the key problems that he pointed out was that we'd become used to the small holes and other small repairs. And getting used to something, a routine, is the worst thing you can do. We'd notice small holes appearing from time to time, but then one day there was a massive one resulting in 113 people dead. And that was for the operations manager. Um, but then in terms of simplicity as well on checklists and things, he said that during takeoff, we only check three items, position of the flaps, position of the air conditioning pack system, and the aircraft trim. We used to have a long checklist, which everybody knows you just sort of throw it aside after a while, which included things such as correct closing of the doors. But if we were um, to take off with the aircraft doors open, while not very smart, this wouldn't actually kill anyone. So um, what I've done with my framework for the avalanche risk management and things um, is, is I've tried to reduce it down to the key things that uh, are, are neglected when there's an accident. And that was the, 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 the reason I wanted to bring up that thing in aviation about they got rid of all the stuff like checking if the doors are closed. Well, of course you don't wanna have, you know, it's be pretty scary if the doors were open on takeoff for everybody, uh, but it's not gonna kill people. So if you look at our framework and you're looking at other, other things and you're, and, you're, and you're embarking on this journey of risk management in the mountains, what you need to do is, is is, is, is try to keep the risk reduction uh, and accident reduction points pertinent to accident reduction. Um, snow metamorphosis, for, I, I love it. And I've, I've, I've ruined all kinds of uh, uh, otherwise uh, very um, uh, bright futures with uh, chatting, chatting with women at the bar. But when I got onto snow metamorphosis, they all seemed to walk away. I'm passionate about it, but it doesn't contribute to accident reduction. And um, as I've said with Chris a number of times, uh, uh, simplicity is a complex, complex uh, thing. So that's why our framework isn't out for sale yet or out on the market yet. No, but it, it is, um, Henry is giving some talks. Um, we, we're putting them onto the Zoom format. Um, so they are happening online, they're on our website. And, and if we can't go um, skiing till January or February, then we're also running some transceiver training as soon as the government releases the lockdown restrictions here in the UK. So uh, where, where are you going to be doing those, Chris? Because they're in some really, really great places. Wimbledon, um, Sandbanks and Manchester, but it all depends on regional restrictions and travel restrictions. And, but as soon as it's possible, which 
um, we will be putting those back on. So, but the online talks are obviously not COVID dependent, and uh, and the talks are there um, with various various dates we've got planned through December and January. So, uh, a few more questions here, Henry. To uh, I think, and uh, I, we are going to lose a few people now. We've we've been we've been here for a while, but I. We will we'll carry on and address the questions. And if, if you guys need to go, well, we understand. It's been a while now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, and and we'll we'll keep these. And maybe were you pretty clear about where people can find them if they want to just sort of uh, scan through the the um, the chat here and they can find a question. Well, they can see them. I, I, everybody can see them in the in the um, in the Q and A. So yeah, no. But afterwards, if people want to come back to it and they need to go off to dinner or something. Uh, um, well, when the recording's out, it'll be possible, yeah. Yeah, okay, but that link will be on our website, right? And but doesn't, um, and this one, doesn't the airline medical finance industry risk minimization approach lead to skiing in less than 30 degree slopes? In other words, the, so the simple way to do it is to only ski less than 30 degrees. Yes, yeah, yeah, um, but, um, you know, you it, it is, and it's been shown that if you, if you do the uh, assessment, information-based assessment, not based on other people are skiing on the slope and there's people around there and it's all, it's all tracked out. And as we all know, um, an, an avalanche can happen on a slope with 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 um, tracks on it. Um, so if you're not basing it on um, quick impulsive uh, human factors uh, that lead to human factors traps. If you're not doing it on those sort of impulsive, impulsive sort of biased, uh, wrong kind of decision making, and doing it more on like um, the, the recent avalanche activity, um, then the, the, it's it's very reasonable to go up onto 30 uh, slopes and into areas that have slopes of 30 degrees or more. And if you're if you if you've done the steps of decision-making and uh, information-based risk, uh, risk assessment. Um, and then you apply the risk reduction measures like avoiding terrain traps, um, then you can reduce the risk down to um, that of the driving for an hour or so a day. Is that, that's, our, that's our reference point. So it's perfectly reasonable to do that. Um, same way as driving, you know, as Chris points out, every time we bring this up, driving is a very dangerous thing. And, um, you know, so, if, if we applied, um, and I, I, f I forget the, uh, the, the, the context that was, that was leading to, you should ski in areas of 30 less than 30 degrees um, all the time. Um, if we stuck to that, it would almost be like saying, okay, well, um, we're not gonna go out driving because there's X amount of chance of death. But we accept that, we all accept that. We, that was showed after the last confinement. When people had to stay at home, um, the deaths on the highway dropped. Um, once the, everything started opening up, the deaths increased. That shows um, by just blatant fact that we're all prepared to take a risk of death, to drive to work and drive to our various social functions. Um, and, uh, and so that's acceptable. And I think that certainly in, in, in skiing, and um, if you think it through and apply the risk reduction measures and really get to know the subject that is reasonable to ski up on slopes of 30 degrees or more. But I certainly, for those of you just starting out, staying around the 30 degree slopes, uh, less than 30 degree steep, steepness and 30 degree slopes is, is a great way to do it while you're learning. And I know like Chris, you know, as we get older, I spend a lot more time, <laughs> well, I spend a lot more time on uh, slopes that are, uh, uh, not of, of less than 30 degrees steepness. I spend a lot of time in slopes less than 30. Yeah. And I, you know what, I've, as 
as I'm reading about, um, there was an assessment by Bruce, uh, uh, a contribution, um, uh, a comment uh, by Bruce Tremper on a recent uh, um, article in the American um, uh, Avalanche Association, the Avalanche Review, um, uh, about on, on the on avalanche hazard um, uh, standards. Uh, but he says that he almost never goes on to 30 slopes of more than 30 degrees. And he always, always, always um, accuses the mountain slopes with snow on them of being guilty before proven innocent. And he says he's scaredy cat afraid. And this is one of the greatest avalanche experts out there, published all kinds of books and everything. So that's a, that's a great point to bring up. But, um, and, and this is also where safety is freedom is, is that, is that you know, you can, uh, with the information decision-making and risk reduction measures, the simple ones and applying them, you can then decide based on fact and evidence um, when you wanna take a risk and really push the limits out there if you want to, but, it's, but there you at least know uh, what you're up against and you're not losing, leading, leading, leaving things to some random uh, uh, chance. But, but I think you would argue, Henry, that if you, if you go, you can still go into slopes greater than 30 degrees, if you apply all of the guidance, all of the checklists, all of the risk management principles, and yeah. bring the risk down to similar to uh, to driving the car. Yes. Oh no, I I I, um, I I I agree with that. I mean, skiing steep slopes, uh, the steep and deeps is 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 awesome. I mean, I, that's one of the reasons why I'm um, I'm here and I'm doing it. I, I I love that. I really love it. And have I taken too much of a risk? Uh, many times I have. And I've and and. And the, and the key thing is you gain experience, and I'm talking to professionals out there too, is not to mistake uh, getting good or um, with being lucky. And in fact, I, I, I show this in my talks now, there's a cover of the American Avalanche Review um, uh, and it, it, geared towards professionals. Are we good or just lucky? And, um, and that's a theme that actually um, I'm going to be doing for a group of algo traders in the city uh, coming, coming up soon, because it's very good in these low feedback environments. It's very easy in these low feedback environments to start getting up this, this sort of algorithm where you have this sort of plan to um, uh, this kind of equation that makes you successful uh, time and time again. And you can be successful and, not, and, and, and be quite reckless for years and years and years in, 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 um, in off-piece skiing. Um, and then something happens that, uh, you know, you otherwise uh, thought shouldn't happen. And, um, and then everything comes down and there's all kinds of chaos and death. We have, I have a couple of linked questions, Henry, um, on, the, on more COVID type questions here. Okay. Have, you heard, have you heard any proposals on how the resorts intend to manage people in resort, lift queues, seats on lifts, bubbles and cable cars? And I have another one from Baxter. Um, from some of the lift company announcements, I'm worried that they have stated they will not be limiting numbers on the mountain, nor reducing numbers capacity on lifts. That worries me when using the Vanuaz Express cable car or telecabines. Is this yeah. your understanding? I, um, as far as I'm aware, and um, you know, th this is, uh, I, I think in the resorts and they're, they're, uh, they're trying to be clear and they're not always achieving it. From what I understand that there's, they're, they're, they're not only do they have to from a, a customer uh, point of view, but by the, the authorities, um, they will be shut down if they do not, um, uh, uh, if they do not impose, I guess for lack of a better word, distancing within the Van Was Express um, on chairlifts, the same as uh, they're going to, uh, they're, 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 
they're imposing masks in, in, in public spaces. So as far as I know, um, there's also the, the, the authorities that are gonna be checking over. Um, and um, of course, uh, in some ways, I'm, you know, I'm glad that they're not very efficient at lockdowns and, and applying the authorities applying uh, all of this stuff because uh, we are in a democratic world and we shouldn't, it shouldn't be perfect. <laughs> perfect um, imposing of, of every little rule, because that would be more like a dictatorship or something. But I, I, I recognize what you're saying. It could be very dangerous if all of a sudden uh, people start getting, you know, uh, just waltzing on um, as they, as you know, they did in the past, which brings up another thing. And I think something that we need to all also um, uh, uh, apply and think about as we move forward is that, is that um, we're responsible too. So, um, you know, and I think I, I can tell by the question there that you're, you're very cautious. You might have a family or something. You want to keep people at distance and of course not get COVID um, or take a risk of that. Um, but everybody's got to, you know, kind of um, do the, uh, I love the, I was just asking Chris before, I love the, the, the mantra in the UK, hands, face, space. Um, and if the, if in, in many ways, the resorts and the authorities shouldn't be having to oppose this, uh, impose this, we should be able to do it ourselves. And ultimately that's uh, the safety's freedom is, um, as, as applied to, into the COVID is that if we apply our safety, um, safety measures, then soon we'll be free um, of these sort of uh, restrictions. But to, in some, I, I believe that, they, that the, 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 the resorts are gonna um, have to uh, apply these measures. And if they don't, they're gonna uh, be shut down. I mean, as an anecdote, um, it's not in France, but in Switzerland, um, there was an incident in Zermatt yesterday um, where the people were taking photos of non-distance queues and fairly quickly the police were there and, uh, and imposing a different, a different regime. So yeah. I think we don't, we're not sure, but, um, but uh, that's, that's interesting what you have to say about that, Henry. Yeah, and I'll try to update too, um, uh, but... Uh... Yeah, anyway, that's the best I could do on that on, on that answer. But thanks for asking it. Paul has just mentioned, he's got it from a source in Chatel that bars and restaurants will remain closed until the 15th of January. Yep, I've heard the same thing. Uh, uh, yeah, France has just introduced that, that, that bars and um, rest, uh, restaurants will be closed to the 15th of January. But one thing I've noticed around, um, around where I live is there is um, a lot of takeaway. They're, they're all, the bars and restaurants are getting very good at takeaway. And also to get, um, get back to the previous question about how the resorts are gonna be um, uh, in, you know, applying and the restrictions to keep, uh, to keep guests safe in, in resort. Um, what I think might happen is that self-catering will start um, being, as this resort's open, it may be just self-catering uh, apartments and the hotels may be a situation where um, you can go to the hotel, uh, the restaurants will be closed, but you'll have room service or something like that. That looks, I think that's the way it's going to start move, um, uh, evolving. Um, I've, I've heard that too, but uh, what Paul said in Chatel is exactly what I've heard. And that was very, fairly recent in the last 24 hours, I think, 15th of Jan. Or, so mountain uh, restaurant lunches look a bit uh, in jeopardy then for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to have to wait for a while for our boozy lunches then, Chris, aren't we? So, uh, um, three more questions I've got, Helen. Uh, uh, one from Helen here. If the group has a good knowledge of risk factors, has prepared well, and follows good practice on the hill in mm -hmm. assessing conditions, how do you weigh up the inputs in final decision as to whether to follow the planned route? 
is it ultimately gut instinct and experience or is there another way um well i'm i'm very wary of gut um gut instinct in fact um I, i'm a strong believer that intuition in um in avalanche terrain doesn't work there's very um unconscious biases tend to help, tell us not to trust our gut too much henry i think don't they and uh, um well unconscious but well yeah yeah well that but but the thing is is that is that um is that we tend to uh, trust our um our our intuitions even when they're wrong and there's even evidence by the you know behavioral scientists nobel prize winners like daniel kahneman and everything to uh, people like that will say that um that that, that uh, the more experienced uh, that you are and the better no, more no notoriety you have as a professional the more you're bound uh to to trust your intuition even when it's wrong so you've got to be very careful with that and also i just want to bring up that quote from the um uh, the Concord thing, where uh, Frank Dubuc, who was the operations manager for the Concord at the time of the accident in July 2000, he said, we'd become used to small holes and other small repairs, and getting used to something, a routine, is the worst thing you can do. Um, and I kind of compare that to, um, you know, we, we notice small holes appearing from time to time, but, um, but we, what they're saying there is that they didn't change their behavior um, according to um, different scenarios coming up. They had one sort of blanket response for these holes appearing, no matter how big or small or um, whatever uh, the character of them. So I would say that um, you 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 want to adapt your decision and to and and your line according to your the, the risk reduction um, and, and principles. Because if you stick with the the idea that you had, um, you know, in the morning then you're, you're, if, if, if we're talking about success and success here is, keep, is, 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 is keeping the risk, risk level down, um, you're going to be unsuccessful. It's a bit like summit fever, you know, or, or you, you plan to go to the summit because um, that's the plan at the beginning of the day. And despite all these, um, these obvious clues around that people like you know about, um, that, that you, you didn't turn around. And that's whether it's a mountaineering or off-piste uh, um, accidents. Um, almost every time there were obvious clues that the people in the group had enough training to recognize, but they didn't for some reason take them into, into account. So that's a good reason to, you know, um, stop and, you know, as they say in surgery, take a time out, even if, you, even if, you know, there's another group that's going to overtake you. And this is the stuff that happens now uh, because of the, the, the increased, the, the increased popularity of off-piste and touring, even when you're out touring, um, you may have a line that you want to do and you're thinking, I'm not sure, and you've been planning on it, and you're thinking, well, there's been recent avalanche activity on similar slopes, but <laughs> it's the last, it's the last slope that we're, you know, each of us are going to be able to get uh, fresh tracks on. <clears throat> That's when it gets really difficult, especially if you have someone in the group going, nah, come on, come on. You know, um, and so that simple thing is if there's been recent avalanche activity on similar slopes, then you've got to go maybe ski a bit of the tracked out powder. And two more questions, Henry. So uh, do you think the now common wearing of helmets causes risk compensation on the piece as well as off piste? Oh, on the piece. Well, you, um, Chris, discovered a, a, an article that was done by some people um, at, at Dartmouth University in um, uh, in the States. And I, I scanned it and went through it and, you know, um, and it seemed to add up to quite a bit of, uh, of uh, evidence pointing towards risk compensation. I think any protective equipment um, is, is, whether it's airbags um, or, you know, all these kinds of things, back protectors or whatever, 
um, there's there's going to be a certain amount of, of risk compensation and especially amongst certain demographics like young men um, are, have been shown to, to be as a whole and I don't want to say anything sort of chauvinist or whatever but as a whole um, will take you know crazy risks um, you know and especially if they have all this extra extra equipment and stuff and um, well I was going to say something about that risk compensation um, so I, I, I rely on the evidence of, um, uh, of, of, of the experts and, and, and people at Dartmouth, you know, that's a, that's a very respected institution. And um, so I think that there is some risk compensation there. Um, and I think also, uh, gosh, I'm getting a bit tired. I was going to bring in some, uh, bring, bring up another, another point with that, uh, but, um, but, I but, but I forgot. A couple more points here, Henry. So yeah. um, moving on from the 30 degree slopes comment, um, should we, not be more aware of the types of snow coming down as well as the changes in temperature that can change the snow throughout the day. Okay, I'm glad you brought this up because um, yes, but that is one place you can use intuition. If there's rapid warming, um, like there often is in springtime, for example, but you know, with the higher temperatures and stuff, um, when, and, and snow being a solid, when it's, when it's heated up to close to its melting point, it becomes even a lot more unstable than, um, uh, than uh, be below in general. Um, so I, I would say no, because, uh, uh, because that you can use your intuition on. You can be looking around most people know when the temperatures are rising, you get more avalanche activity in springtime and, 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 and when the slopes been in the in sun and when the temperatures increase. And the reason I say no, you shouldn't be paying more attention to that, um, especially in December, January and February, for example, is that about um, the vast, vast majority, 75 to 80% of all accidents in the Northern hemisphere happen in December, January and February and on north facing slopes. Um, all right. Now that's not to say, because every time I say that at a talk, people say, well, oh, so we don't have to worry about south-facing slopes in springtime. Of course you do, but there, um, th there's a lot lower rate of accidents in springtime on south-facing slopes, for example, to get to, um, because it is intuitive. Um, and come, come, come to the in-depth talk to get a more detailed explanation on that one, Henry, isn't there? Yes, yeah. But I don't want to, I, I don't want to say that like if you're mountaineering or you, you, or you're, 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 you're skiing and you, you, you sit up and uh, sit down on the, uh, underneath a, uh, uh, a steep slope um, with, with uh, where, and snow just a day or two before, and it's just getting south facing. You can just sort of, Henry said, well, we don't have to worry about south facing slopes. Certainly, um, you know, there's about uh, from south southeast to south southwest facing slopes in the northern hemisphere, it's about 15 to 20 percent, I think, if I remember correctly, of, of, of all accidents. So it's, you know, it's, it's significant, but, um, but you need to be looking at um, slope angle. Um, as the as as the most important thing and uh, triggering of uh, dry slab avalanches, especially in de December, January, and February, and then in springtime, um, I will address uh, that with. Uh, and you can also Google it or, or do a search on our website, um, skiing the smooth um, uh, spring spring snow, and it'll come up. Like I've, I've done a one, I've done a one pager on how to get great skiing in springtime with a spring snowpack. All of the experts will say, ah, oh, spring snowpack is the stablest, most predictable time of year. So that's my, my answer to that. And the last um, question. comments, I'm happy to hear back from you. Last question on this, on this session. Is it the case that in a tragedy, the most qualified member of the group, e.g. an instructor, 
uh, can become the one held liable? Um, it is a tragedy, yes, uh, that they can become liable. And that's why all of us uh, professionals um, need to move away from these, this um, intuition. You mentioned earlier, Chris, about you know, the mysteries of avalanches and mountaineering. And what we try to do at Henry's Avalanche Talk is clear up a lot of the mysteries, um, uh, present facts-based and, um, and, and information-based ways of making decisions and, and, and knowing the phenomena. And um, intuition and this sort of mysterious kind of, oh, I have this feeling kind of thing, that doesn't work. Um, so we've got to get away from that. And we've also, as the airline pilots, um, you know, I know there's a, a few airline pilots out there and, uh, and also surgeons, we've got to be a lot more humble and listen to um, the, the, the client um, when they have a comment to say, even if half of what they're saying is very naive and perhaps uninformed, it may just take us out of that automatic impulsive decision-making mode and help us to see things in a bigger way um, and, 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 and actually see these uh, obvious clues that could have otherwise uh, been, been, been missed. Um, and that goes for, you know, listening and they're doing this in the surgery, surgery, um, surgery, listening to the, the nurse on the surgical team or someone who, you know, the, 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 the junior, um, you know, even the junior nurse who might bring something up or whatever. Um, it is a tragedy, um, but it's, it, it, it happens in, in, in all, all professions. And I think also one thing I wanted to point out here is that um, whether it's the surgical safety checklist or other things too, it helps you. If you can keep a record, at least in mind, that you went through those points, the, the risk reduction points and the decision-making points, and if you've done it with a client, then that will, will, will be the evidence that showed that you were being responsible out there. And when people get charged, um, whether it's, uh, you know, in other professions, um, uh, like um, with, with, with negligence, a lot of times that could have been avoided um, by, an, uh, by the sur surgical safety checklist, for example. That's why I can't understand uh, surgeons who don't, who don't just quickly go through that. That's, it's, it's, it shows that, that it's also a, a, a um, shield or a protection from liability too. So, well, thank you very much, Henry, for an energetic and uh, I think very insightful talk. I think we ranged further and deeper than I could have even hoped. So yeah, well, um, it's been a, a great start, I think, to the, uh, we've had some nice feedback already from the, um, from the people. And uh, we're hoping, to, we're now looking to attract in some other others to talk to myself and talk to Henry about risk management. Um, so, uh, and I'm guessing about every fortnight, but we will, it won't be a reg, it won't be a, a regular time slot. It'll be when we can get people and, and to join. And as I say, this will then be also redistributed as a podcast and through our own channels, um, for, for people to take up later. Um, so thank you everybody for joining us. Yeah, thank and, you for uh, hanging in there, everybody. I've seen most of the vast majority, of, vast majority of people have stayed here till the end. Thank you, Chris, also for, uh, for facilitating everything. I couldn't have done this on my own, no way. So, and also all, thank you all for your, for your questions and I uh, hope to see you soon here on Henry's Avalanche Talk where safety is freedom. And Rob, yeah, we will give you a bit more notice next time. Thank you very much, guys. All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Bye.